let's turn to the book of Psalms. Okay, Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8. Uh, really praying and asking God to teach us how to encounter God in prayer. Learning to encounter God in prayer. Let's give our attention to this. I'll read it for us. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This is God's word so far. Thanks be to God. If you've grown up at a church for any length of time, or read any books, or been instructed on this topic of prayer, uh, I'm sure you've heard something along the lines of prayer is the most important thing you can do. Uh, It is the lifeline of Christian life. It is the avenue through which God plants and builds and flourishes churches to accomplish her vision and mission. In other words, you have heard prayer is the greatest or one of the best things you could ever do. I'm sure you've heard something like that. You're bracing yourself. Well, that's what I'm here this morning again. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But can I just suggest you from the outset as we approach this topic... Either that's true, it's the greatest thing you can do. You hear all kinds of superlatives about this topic and this practice, even throughout church history and throughout the scriptures and how much Apostle Paul prayed and how much prayer he asked for constantly. Either it is the greatest thing you could do or it's a complete waste of time. Okay, Anything that people talk about in that kind of language with such superlative emphasis, it is either that or the complete opposite. I don't think there's anything in between. I don't think there's anything in between. So this morning, as instructed and guided by the Psalms, just two angles we're going to take, what we can learn to do in prayer, what we do in prayer, and then second is what God does in prayer. All right, so just two buckets. First, what we can do, how we learn to pray, and second, what God does in prayer. First, I mentioned this last night, and if you have the blessing and the incredibly sanctifying journey of having children, young children, I visited over there at the other room, looks like they're in great hands, they're in great hands. Pastor John was so kind saying, you know, sorry we went so late last night, you know, because I went late, we started late. 
some of you were apologetic for all the people who are taking care of your precious little kids that we went to 1050 instead of 1015, right? Remember that? Come on, let's admit it. Some of you parents were so happy. <laughs> You're like, dude, let's go till midnight. Maybe that's why you guys were so encouraging and warm and receptive. I was like, this is a good crew. No, it's just parents like, thank you, God. They're just over there. <clears throat> well, how do our children learn to speak? How do they learn to speak? It's because they've been spoken to. They've been spoken into. One of the first starting points of prayer is without God speak, it is foreign, unfamiliar, uncomfortable to speak back to God. Language has to be spoken into you. That's, that's why the word of God is absolutely vital. It comes first. Again, maybe it's just me. You just drop me off anywhere. Harold, pray. Just pray. It's like getting a motor running in the dead of winter in Chicago or New York. It takes a long time. But if you put Harold under good preaching or someone's reading the scriptures or someone is singing gospel lyrics or someone is pouring and speaking into my heart, into my soul, all of a sudden it's just easier to pray. I feel fed. I feel stirred. I feel moved to pray. The Psalms do the same thing. They, they, they exhibit the exact same pattern. Children learn to speak to Abba Father, moms, relatives, other adults. Why? Because they've been spoken into. Eugene Peterson, who recently passed, known as a pastor for pastors, wrote many, many insightful books on pastoral ministry. All of them are quite frightening and humbling and sobering. He once observed, quote, language is spoken into us. We learn language only as we are spoken to. We are plunged at birth into a sea of language. We are plunged at birth into a sea of language. Verse 2 and 3 of Psalm 63. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So those are full-on sentences. Those are beautiful sentences. Those are poetic sentences. The Psalter didn't become like this overnight. More than that later. His prayer language is exquisite. It's inspired by God. He knows how to talk back to God. Do not be discouraged that you have to be here. None of us are here. But we can learn that there's a progress to our prayer life. The more and more God speaks into you, His Word comes into you, naturally the human soul wants to communicate back and respond. At first with little itty-bitty words, at first with incomplete sentences. I love Romans chapter 8 because I'm really weak in prayer. It says sometimes the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There are a lot of times that my best prayer times doesn't sound anything like the Psalms. I don't want anyone to hear me because it's just a bunch of mumbling and crying and sighing and dry heaving or whatever it is because you feel so sick. 
You don't think God can accept and welcome the cries of his children? God is so much more gracious, so much more sensitive than any human parent in this room. He is not trying to measure you based upon how eloquent or how much like the Psalms you are in your prayer. But you got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. And somewhere with something is better than nothing. And to learn to encounter God in prayer, as I can see the intentional effort throughout the theme and the times of this retreat, you start somewhere and God loves it that you come. So it is responsive. The first thing we learn about how to learn to pray, like the psalmist or any Christian believer, is it must be responsive. It's dependent upon and a result of God speaking into us. It's his steadfast love and his power and glory. Somehow has been shown or spoken into this altar's life and that's why he's able to pray it back. Second, how we learn to pray. First, it's responsive. God speak, then we speak. And no matter what form it takes of your speaking, you begin somewhere. Second, uh, regularity. Regularity. Verse 6. At what time of day is, is this psalmist praying? Verse 6. This is open book exam. It's okay. You can actually look back at the Bible and read it. It's all right. And it's responsive, right? Prayer is responsive? Responsive? This is responsive. What time of day? At night. He says, I meditate on, uh, about you on, uh, in my bed. And then throughout the watches of the night. So he's having an all-nighter. He's having trouble sleeping. He has insomnia. He has anxiety. He has worry. He has pain. Why can he not sleep? He's suffering. He's in trouble. What is he doing with that time? He's learning to pray. It's at night. It's at night. If you read Psalm 5, in the morning, I bring my request to you. If you read Psalm 6, I drench my couch and my bed with tears. It's at night. If you read other Psalms, it's in the middle of the day. So at what time of day do the psalmist pray? Night, morning, day, throughout the night, it doesn't matter what time. Here's what this suggests. You do know that Psalm 63, this title or this categorization is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. You do know that Psalm 3, when it was first written, he didn't start by saying, this is Psalm 3. We put these categories in so we can find it. Right? We put it in so that we can locate it. The Psalms were all written somewhat together. They're actually meant to be read and understood together as a flowing prayer, as one book. So if you really want to learn how to pray, and this happens to be the prayer or song book, straight from God, you need to understand all of it in its context of the book. And so what the psalmist is doing is, I think he's learning to pray better in the morning, day and night. So he prays in the morning so he can pray better in the day. And then in the day he can pray better at night. And he prays at night so he can pray, pray better at 4 a.m. And on and on and on it goes. How do we learn to pray? Mumbling, grumbling, shorter catechism, new city catechism. Wonderful tool for your children. 
When I was teaching my girls that, they knew more than a lot of adults at our church. They had no idea what they were saying, but they knew God speak and was able to recite it back. There's responsiveness and then there's regularity. Regularity. Practice, progress, rehearsals, familiar, comfortable. That's how you develop in any relationship. And so let's be frank. I always want to be frank. I try to be frank. My friend, if you have a hard time feeling familiar, comfortable of praying, and your usual excuse is always, I don't like the loud, vocal, public prayers. I don't like that. That's fine. That's great. And you say, well, my prayer life is really secret. I obey the Sermon on the Mount. Go pray in secret in your closet. No one should ever hear me. I like doing it privately because that's more pleasing to God. Can I just tell you, so some of you guys have such a secret prayer life, you don't even know it's there. <laughs> it's so quiet, you don't even know what you're saying. And it's okay when it's so unfamiliar. It's okay that it's so uncomfortable. Can I just suggest to you, you're not having a close relationship with God. I don't talk to my wife this way. I don't talk to my best friend this way. I don't talk to other pastors this way. The more you get over the awkwardness, the more you get over the uncomfortability, there's relationship that begins to develop and there's language that starts to flourish. Regularity, regularity. Uh, I, I have several good friends and by the blessing of God, uh, I don't know why some of them do attend our church at Christ Central and other network of friends are pastors somewhere, but the ones who attend my church, we go all the way back from undergrad, high school, crazy stuff that God has put us through. Not that crazy, but you know, just things that as pastors, you don't want your church members to know that that's what you did. And uh, a mom of one of my really good friends at church, she came and visited from Northern Cal and I was talking to her on the phone. She's like, you know, Harold so-and-so, I hear my son, he really enjoys and he's going to your church, thank God. He's my age, but she talks about him as if he's still a little kid. Um, you know, he feels like he's grown up. And I, I have such a good relationship with her. I joked, I said, hey, Mrs. So-and-so, your son hasn't changed that much. He's like the same. <laughs> so please don't judge our church based upon the progress or the growth or the lack thereof of your son. We love him. But, you know, that's how close I am with the mom. And I, and I told her, I said, you know, no changey. Your son, no changey. And I always tell her, please pray for your son and for me at our church that there would be some changey. She came back brilliant without skipping a beat. She goes, Pastor, if I weren't praying for him and for you, he'd be far worse. And we both cackled. <laughs> Do you know who was in the phone call? Her son on a speakerphone. <laughs> No prayer, no changey. Uh, no prayer, much worse. <laughs> and don't we love for some of us, what an incredible blessing it is that we have parents, aunts, grandmas, first generation, immigrant church, others of us who are just blanketed, covered with prayer for you and for your kids. Right? The trouble is, is who's doing that with ours? The trouble is who's doing that with ours. 
I used to, used to, maybe still do functionally, look down upon 5 a.m., 6 a.m. prayer. Frankly, because if I do 5 or 6 a.m. prayer, I usually have to take a nap and it ruins the rest of my day. I just couldn't comprehend it. I don't know, I've explained this to you. It doesn't make sense to me, to my efficiency ratings. And you guys may poo-poo on 5 a.m., 6 a.m. prayer. That's okay. The Bible doesn't say it has to be 5 or 6 a.m. But at what time of the day is there regularity of prayer? Remember how I suggested yesterday more than radical resolutions, rhythms, repetitions, habits might change you more? So here it is. Maybe this is the one takeaway. And it's really simple. This is the one takeaway from the whole retreat. It really doesn't matter what time, what form, what place, how you are going to be regular in prayer really does not matter. Here, but here's the point. Find the best time, rhythm, place, posture, activity, something that will make you regular in prayer. Because this is either the greatest and best use of time or the worst, or a complete waste of time. In the last two or three years, what God has forced upon me biologically, physically, is, uh, yeah, I used to like not just watching sports, but playing a lot of sports. Now my back is messed up, knees are messed up, I'm too sore. When you're in your 20s or 30s, you just can't wait to play and go all out. You'll play all night, you'll feel the next, great the next morning. Now, 40s and after, I'm afraid of playing because you feel like you're going to blow out something. You're afraid of injury. So now my favorite form of exercise is, it's pathetic, it's not even, it's not even dry, it's just walking. That's all I do. And I started two years because I have gout, I have knee issues, back issues. And in the beginning, it felt pathetic. Oh, just going to walk for 30 minutes. Hardly don't even sweat. How many calories is burning? I did it two, three times a week. Then it started to expand to 45 minutes after about several months. Now it went to an hour. Now an hour and a half will go by. Now I feel something is off. My wife said, you're sick. Every day, my body doesn't feel right if I don't just walk. Remember that little verse? Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So walk in Him. He's giving you the key. Remember what it was like to first meet Jesus Christ. That first come to Jesus moment. Then He says, repeat it. Walk in Him. He doesn't say sprint or run. He says, just repeat, remember and repeat, remember and repeat how you first came to Jesus. And if you repeat the same spirit with which you first came to Jesus, and you walk and repeat in that spirit every single day, this is actually how Christ changes you the most. And God has a great sense of humor in my life. He knows that Harold is so prone to busyness, so prone to uh, distraction. I have some form of ADDs. I really do. He's so prone to be frenetic and busy. Physically, he had to just slow me down. And I have found that in my daily one hour, an hour, hour and a half walks has been the best time of prayer. Not just to clear my body, but clear my mind and my soul. Find it. Find it. Where and when can there be regularity so that you can hear from God and you can speak back to Him? This is what the psalmist did. Responsiveness and regularity. 
you can really tell who your functional true God is, is when you do get stressed or in trouble or grieving or anxious heart. Okay, so listen close. Your true functional God today is, what is your go-to move when you are in trouble or anxious or fearful or grieving? What's your go-to move? Some of you, it's, you're going to get online and shop. You're going to buy something. Instantly makes you feel better. Some of you, it's, you got to go to a bar or your own private bar in your house. Instantly, it'll make you feel better. Some of you, is you got to call up and meet with someone and vent and kind of overventilate and talk about all the negative, bitter feelings you have. Some of you, it's a certain medication. Some of you, it's extra exercise. Some of you, it's just you don't want to think about it. You don't want to think about it. So you will pour yourself into extra work. Whatever your go-to move is, not only is it forming neural pathways in your brain, making you addicted and habit forming so that your whole life is going to always go to that go-to move. What the psalmist tells us, however, is more than just what it does to your biochemistry or your neural pathways is, do you not know that your soul was designed to have a go-to move and only in God are you actually going to find some freedom and joy and relief and peace that passes understanding? That all the other avenues and go-to moves that we choose actually do not solve much at all. In regularity... In walking, in responsiveness, God actually does something spectacular. So just two things. What we can do to learn to pray. Responsive, second, responsive. I mean, regular. (laughs) I just said the same thing. Responsive and regularity. Now, what does God do? What does God do? Three things real quick. God redirects. He redirects. Verse 1 began with, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is not exaggeration. It sounds like he's dying. Do you know why he sounds like he's dying? Because he literally might have been dying. Desperate, maybe the bottom pit. He's hit, he's hit the bottom, rock bottom. That's verse 1. And then we read in verses 3 and 4. Your steadfast love is better than life. I'll bless you as long as I live. I'm going to lift up my hands in your name. Do you see the radical redirection? Do you see the transformation? How does he go from honest suffering and complaint to verses 3 and 4? Well, because in prayer, we get to think and see and sense and discern things the way that God discerns them. We get to think and feel about things the way that God would think and feel about that thing. Only in prayer, the children of God get to think God's own thoughts after Him. We get directions from Him. He redirects us. Again, into that amazing passage of Romans chapter 8, verse 27, which Apostle Paul wrote... And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And you have to love the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's praying and groaning and sighing for you when you are weak and don't even know what to say in prayer. 
So the Holy Spirit is not just helping you to pray. The Holy Spirit is praying for you, covering you, interceding for you 24-7. And as the Holy Spirit is praying for you and with you, the Holy Spirit is redirecting you in your prayer to discern and sense things the way that you should sense and discern them. Do you, do you believe this? Do you believe that that's what God actually can and does do in prayer? That He can detox and reprogram minds? That without prayer, you're going to make certain decisions? You're going to have go-to moves? You're going to have patterns? You're just always going to conclude in a certain way? But only in prayer, God is going to come down in His Spirit and actually reprogram you? So that you're going to come out and make a much wiser, godlier, life-giving, freeing, joyful, and gospel-influencing, gospel-spreading decision? Countless times, countless times, no matter what language you put on it, God has redirected minds, hearts, feelings, and decisions. And He has saved me over and over and over and over and over again. In our circles, we call it maybe illumination of the word, or God applies the general word to a specific situation. I have charismatic friends who may call it the word of wisdom or the word of prophecy, where they say, God specifically told me I should do this. Well, I think the truth is somewhere in between in there, but the Holy Spirit does apply and intercede and redirect minds. So, several key decisions in the life of Christ Central in the last 12 years. Several. But I can count them on my fingers when I felt it was not quite audible, but close to. And I sense certain impressions or such strong leadings that you can't find whether it's black and white, right or wrong in the scriptures. It's somewhere in the nebulous gray area. You're not quite sure. What do I do with those impressions or dreams or thoughts and desires that God lays upon my heart or your heart? How do you check if this is really from the Lord? How do you check? Of course in prayer. And after many, many weeks or months of prayer... I bring it before my BFF, not Pastor Owen, (laughs) my wife. She has to check it. Then along with my wife, after that's cleared, I bring it before our session, our elders. Then after my elders, I have to bring it before all of our key leaders, ordained officers, deacons, my closest friends at church. And here's the point. I always do trust that if God is redirecting my mind, those who are praying and those who are in the Spirit, He'll, re- he- he'll redirect theirs too. And the best way to discern what God is discerning, and the best way to know that that's the direction that God is going to take you, all of us together in prayer, we should begin to sense similar things. Because if it's from the Lord... The Lord does speak not only individually, but collectively through His church. I mean, I I could end here just in one of the practical things that God does and the benefits of prayer. How He saves us over and over and over and over again. Around the year of 1999, to be exact, how can I forget it, is New Year's at an airport. I was begging and asking for a ring back because I was engaged. My dad had handed down a ring to my mom. I took that ring. We dated a very short period of time. She was wailing. She was bitter. 
I said, this engagement is off. That lady is not my wife today. Broke off and called off an engagement. I had East Coast friends fly out. It's so embarrassing. Invites had gone out. Do you know how that relationship started to deteriorate? Well, of course, internal signs, crazy signs. I was no good for her. She was not going to be good for me in ministry. God saved her from me, (laughs) more than me breaking up from her. But my mom had these dreams. She had these impressions. And they were awful nightmare type of impressions. She was a widow then, single. And I used to take her along. Guys, brilliant, wise advice. When you go out on dates, take your single mom. I used to take her with us. Yeah, and married moms. That's right. That's right. She went with us. I look back at this. I say, Harold, you are such an idiot. But I was all in God's plans. Oh, so-and-so, let's go out. Oh, by the way, my mom's coming too. And her discernment had to be tried and true. I did not base a decision based upon her dreams, but I wouldn't even begin to imagine how much her dream was already coming true. Discernment. Two years ago, um, a little bit about my family, Taylor and Elizabeth. My wife named the first, I named the second. No, it has nothing to do with Elizabeth Taylor backwards. Elizabeth was in sixth grade two years ago. She's in eighth grade now. She's the tallest one now. She's sprouting like 13. Always makes fun of her older sister. Ha ha, Taylor, I'm always going to be taller than you now. She really is growing really, really fast. Two years ago, I I caught her on Netflix watching a show called 13 Reasons. And I had read about a little bit. And I watched just the first episode. And after I watched the first episode, I said, for so many reasons, this is wrong. And I sat down with Elizabeth. Elizabeth, can I just ask you, why are we watching the show? Thursdays? Oh, Dad, everyone in the sixth grade watches the show. Everyone was talking about it. When she got home on a weekend, she turned it on. She's watching 13 Reasons. Without going through the whole show, why it's so inappropriate and wrong on so many levels, to me, my opinion of the show is that that show kills off all hope and redemption. It kills off all hope and redemption. So I had to redirect my daughter and tell her why not only she should not watch the show, but later on if she does watch the show, how antithetical it is to what God thinks of you and other people. My daughter has to be redirected. She doesn't know better. She thinks if you just watch and consume that whole show that it's not going to have some kind of repercussions and effects down the line. Now, you really don't think God has to check in on things we're doing and being consumed by and what we're thinking and lusting after and loving? You don't think God has to check in and redirect you? And depending upon where you're at, sometimes God has to be so direct and explicit. No, no. Paul tells us in his letters, don't do that. But do do this. If you're a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not, well, Jesus loved me so I can stay the way that I am. He's going to leave me alone. That is a fake, false gospel. But if Jesus really loves me just as I am, he's not going to leave me just as I am. If he loves me just as I am, his love will change me for good. That's true love. 
His love will never say, I love you just as you are, and so I'm just going to leave you just as you you are. His love, because it's unchanging, is changing you for good. And sometimes it has to be direct and in your face and explicit, but later on, as you get the mind of Christ, think God's thoughts after Him. Apostle Paul says, I pray that the very mind of Jesus Christ would be His. There's so many areas of life that you have to exercise wisdom and discretion, and you're going to have to actually apply as you get older. As you get older. So Elizabeth, the age of 13, no, you should not watch. 13 reasons why. No, you should not watch 13 reasons why. Now when she's 33, 33, not married with me at my house. (laughs) My plan, that's my plan. Then she comes to me and says, Dad, Today, can I wear this? Dad, today, should I eat that cereal? Dad, what time should I go to bed? Dad, can I watch this on Netflix? <laughs> I'd be like, I have utterly failed as a parent. You can't make these decisions by yourself. Hopefully, Elizabeth, you have a developed, wise, mature mind that you can discern and direct yourself into wise, appropriate things, or else I am not a good parent. Why do you think God has... Lesser goals for you. And how do you think he develops your mind to make wise, godly decisions? Sometimes you have to be very explicit and direct depending upon where you're at. But later on, he develops your mind to think God's own thoughts and discern and sense things in his word and as you respond back in prayer. When Elizabeth is 33 and Taylor is 35 at my house, and then one day, the fateful day, they come to me, Dad, I, I met someone. I like this boy. I like this boy. At that point, they should tell me everything. And I will unilaterally tell them what they should do. <laughs> Give me the social security number. I'm going to go into a federal database with law enforcement officials at our church. I'm going to break laws. <laughs> I'm going to get a rundown. I will make that decision for you. (laughs) Does God redirect you? Friends, before you buy that, before you plan that, before you say that, before you do that, before you just do that, do you ever check that? Do you really? Do you check people in the spirit who are praying? How about what does God say about that? What does God think about that? What does God feel about that? What does God warn and tell you about that? Prayer for Star Trekkies is how you mind meld with God. Second, here's what God does. Redirects, redirects. Number two, replenishes, replenishes. I was thirsty and I was fainting and I was dying How painful is that in verse 1, verse 5, but now my soul will be satisfied as it's rich and fat uh, fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. God replenishes. He gives you strength. He gives you supply. He gives you satisfaction. Just as your physical body can be so hurting and fatigued, so thirsty, 
and you must get food and drink into your body, so your soul thirsts and hungers and languishes without encountering God. Do you go after this in prayer? Do you try? Do you want that? Responsive and regularity will help you to do it. Third, last one. He redirects. God replenishes. And then God brings reality. Reality. This is where all preachers fail. And uh, it's comical, right? (laughs) God appoints preachers to talk about things that... uh, we do our best that no one can actually put into words. The best times of prayer in my language would be, and uh, they don't happen regularly because I'm so poor in it. I still got to walk. Can I say experientially subjectively? The best times of prayer I have are the times of prayer in which I don't want to stop. I don't want to leave it. Because it's that sweet, it's that transcendent, it's that rich, it's that ecstatic. If you've never, never, ever, ever had that, I want to encourage you, you can start somewhere. But if and when you taste that, your love is better than life. You're satisfying my soul with rich food. God gives you reality. Prayer is how theology turns into practical experience. My friends, I am talking about subjectivity here. I am talking about feelings here. And I'll tell you this. Christianity is never less than feelings. It's at least feelings. But deeper and much more. I'm not saying Christianity, your spiritual condition is equal to how you feel. No, 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 no. But please don't make too little of it. Or too much of it. When the Bible says, rejoice always. Rejoice always. You don't think that has anything to do with your feelings? When the Bible says, this world will give you trouble, trouble, trouble. You'll have sorrow after sorrow. But I'll give you peace. You don't think that peace has anything to do with your feelings? Well, how do you think your feelings start to get changed and redirected and replenished? How do you think that happens? In prayer, there's an actual supernatural encounter where you meet with with the living God. And His Spirit brings about palpable, sensory, experiential, life-giving communion, a taste of God. I think on the way here, um, on, on the nice car ride, I loved your church from the point of being picked up at the airport because it was a Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> uh, this is what I'm talking about. And then I walked into this retreat site and said, I love this church now. <laughs> they asked me questions of, you know, how did you become a pastor and all that stuff. So I'll give you the medium-sized story. I was at Cal studying history and economics, uh, deluded into thinking that I could make a lot of money, become successful by doing Wall Street stocks. It's just all you know, glorious, distant, grandiose little stuff. stuff. So I took a semester off at a place called Shearson Lehman Brothers uh, in South Torrance. That's before it was Lehman Brothers. And it's, you know, it's wildly successful now, Lehman Brothers. (laughs) And I interned there in my junior year, 
and my dad had gone to a, a business trip, literally to the remote parts of Siberia, coal mining industry, and uh, he came back. I picked him up. I remember because I'd taken the semester off and lost all color in his face, overworked, overexhausted. But you know, one of the godliest men I've known in my life. He became a believer maybe uh, midway through junior high, end of end of uh, elementary school. And I knew as a Korean American kid something radical changed his life because he stopped talking to me about going to Harvard. He stopped talking to me about what did you do on your daily discipline. Tell me your whole schedule. And instead, he started to talk about his struggles with sins, opened up the Bible, and we started to talk about man-to-man, about how to grow in Christ. I was blown away. What happened to my dad? (laughs) Well, my dad went and heard the gospel at a church and got utterly converted. And the Holy Spirit came into his life and changed him inside out. And into my junior year, I picked him up from the airport, did not look too well. He always overworked at church and his life. Two weeks later, we get an emergency phone call from the hospital. My mom and I, 6 a.m., rushed to the hospital. And I see my dad convulsing, lost speech, lost vision. He was having seizure-like movements, and in five days, he died. So he dropped dead at 46. I just turned 46. Quite a sobering year unannounced, unprepared for, out of the blue, gone. He waited until my younger sister flew down from Cal, four or five days at the hospital, woke up at one point, said his farewells, and then God took him home. God took him home. There are millions of reasons why God would allow that. I may know two or three reasons why. Because after my dad died, I instinctively, naturally started to pray like never before. I pray at night. I pray on my bed. I pray in the morning. I pray in the day. No one had to tell me to pray. I couldn't help but pray. And there were moments there where God became my heavenly father that I struggle and fail to explain to you what it's like. And there are moments of my prayer life that was so sweet and strong and real at that moment that I'm trying to uh, recover still to this day. But I do want to tell you, my friends, God is real and he really can be a father to you in the absence of a good one or in the presence of an abusive one. God really can be the best spouse for you in the midst of a miserable one or the loss of a good one or with the future hopes of when will you get one Jesus Christ is a real BFF older brother to you. He is the one that can be real to you. And do you know how? As you may sense or feel it now, it's not because someone talks to you about it or tells you about it. It's because you go get it in prayer. Okay, it's there. 
It's there. Do you know the reality of God is there for you? It's there. You can just go get it. You say, well, pastor, I've tried. I don't taste or feel that. It's there. It is there. Learn to be responsive and regular. Go after it harder, longer. Wait. Be patient. But it's there. Do you know how I know it's there? And I can tell you, look you in the eye and say, you better go after it. Go get it. it I know it's there for you. You wouldn't even be interested to go get it unless God wants to come get you. Do you know that after this retreat, if you make any moves toward God in prayer, it's because God's been making moves toward you? Do you know that if you have any spiritual thirsting or hungering or languishing or depression, any spiritual movement where you want the palpable reality of God, I'll tell you, God did come in palpable reality in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. He gave up his life and he's risen from death. He's alive and well and his spirit can come down and redirect you, replenish you and make himself real, real. Do you know how much God wants to come get you? Do you know how much God wants to be real to you? Do you know how many moves God has made to become palpably, experientially real to you? Here's how. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, who was perfectly responsive, all the time regular. He was in perfect communion with God. And at the cross, God shut down his prayer life. Forget about a government shutdown. Forget about your business shutdown. Forget about marriages being shut down. Forget about children being, you can't see them again. Forget about that. God shut down. The crying and the groaning and the prayer life of his own Christ, his own perfect son. And do you know why he was shut down? So he can open up and unleash your prayer life. So that whenever you cry and say, in imperfect fumbling words, Abba Father, Heavenly Father, I need you right now. My soul thirsts and dies without you. Would you please come and touch me? I really need to know your love is real. Your purposes are true. You don't fail your promises. You forgive me of all my sins. Really, all my sins, past, present, and future. God, you can use my worst embarrassment and humiliation and disease and pain for something good. I have a hard time believing these things, God. You know, am I the only one in the world who has a hard time feeling and believing that these things are true? Am I the only one in the world wondering if I'm deluded and I'm crazy and I'm wasting my whole life? Am I the only one who longs after the world so often that I feel like maybe the world is right and the word of God is not right? Am I the only one who struggles like this? Well, if you do, and if you're interested, and if you want God to be real, it's right there for you. And Jesus did not get replenished. He got ruined. He did not get redirected. He hit a dead end. And when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All reality was lost. So that the Hebrews author tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need.
It has never been a burden to me that when my daughters are in desperate, desperate need or help or they're in pain and they cry out, Mom, Dad, please come here. That we don't go running there. We go there to go get them. It has never been a burden or obligation that my daughters, when in desperate need, need to go get Dad. Dad would do anything to go get them. Again, do you think God is less than that? Do you think God is going to do less than that? This is why we can pray. Let's pray.